I'm sorry. I know our posters say think differently, but our real slogan is no refunds. Good morning and welcome to episode 208 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. Thanks. It's good to be yes. here. Yes. Uh, I am Lindberg, joined by Sam Miller. Today is Wednesday, so it's the listener email show. I haven't really looked at the questions since they came in the first time, but Sam has, I believe, and has has curated the best ones, and we had a, a ton this week. Uh, Incidentally, this is not something we've discussed. <laughs> no, <laughs> ben, is, ben is just intuited <laughs> that this is something I would Yes, I, I gathered from, from some emails that were sent earlier that you, you were reviewing them, at least. Uh, and there were a lot this week, maybe the most ever. Yeah, I think certainly the most ever. Well, thank you, people who emailed us. Yeah, and uh, it's with great sorrow that we won't answer all of mm-hmm. them. I, I genuinely feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, so let's just yeah. start. All right, so Mark comes through with probably my favorite question ever. Um, so everybody else should feel a little bit bad. Um, Mark says, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to pay for games that our team loses? It's hard enough to sit through a game in which our team is two hit and nobody reaches third, but to pay for it is just wrong. So here's my idea. Double the price of all tickets. Let people choose to buy either a home ticket or an away. If the corresponding team loses, the ball club would refund or credit the entire price. No more post-game. Our club was a little down today, but that's okay because you guys paid for it anyways. Attitude for the team. Now, the I'm going to simplify this a little bit just for the sake of conversation. The Well, maybe we'll get to it. Maybe we'll add it back in. But the, the part about choosing to buy either a home ticket or an away mm-hmm. ticket, I, I would like to put aside. Um, I, I am absolutely in love with this idea. And I'm a little frustrated because I can't make it work. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's possible that, that this could work, uh, which is too bad because it is brilliant. It is uh, – I mean – you, it does seem like you, you're a lot more likely to come back to the park if you leave satisfied, and if you, uh, you if you see a, a thrilling victory, you'll be satisfied, and if you don't have to pay for it, you'll probably also be kind of satisfied. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a you know maybe it's gimmicky, but it, there's also a certain logic to it. I mean, in a sense, there's not logic to it. You you pay for a product, and if you're dissatisfied with the product. Um, unless there's fraud involved, we generally, you know, think that it's, you know, buyer beware, Mm -hmm. right? You don't, you know, if you buy something, well, I mean, yeah, basically you can't just, you can't eat a meal, finish the whole thing and then say it was gross and you want your money back. You have to, you know, there has to be something wrong with it. And unless the team is doing something fraudulent, that wouldn't usually qualify, you know, just by losing. Um, but I think it would be, you know, it'd be enormously satisfying either way. Now, so the problem is there's two problems, I think. Uh, one problem is a big one, which is that you would be incentivizing the fans to cheer against you. Uh, and I think they might. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think that a lot of fans would get there and um, be perfectly happy, be perfectly happy <laughs> to see a loss <laughs> uh, if, if it meant their money back. I mean, they might not actually cheer out loud. Uh, but I've had I've had instances where uh, there was some small personal gain in an unfavorable outcome for my team. Mm-hmm. And you really do have to like discipline yourself to not get sucked into thinking, well, 
you know, it's, it's okay. I'll just, you know, it's whatever happens, mm-hmm. happens. Or, I mean, you know, you, you should really want to go to the park or you should want your fans to go to the park with full, full hearted support for you. And so creating any ambivalence whatsoever might be bad. And so then I thought, well, one idea to this might be, uh, rather than doubling the price of tickets, you could just write, raise them somewhat and then refund a, a certain level of blowout. But I think every fan if their team was down six and the, the, the money cutoff was eight, I think in that case, every fan would be rooting against yes. them because you know you're going to lose anyway. And there's probably nothing more demoralizing than the giddy feeling. I mean, you've been in a park where, or like a basketball arena where it's like 120 points gets you one taco the <laughs> next day. And I mean, fans are just dying for this <laughs> one taco. Uh, and so you can just imagine the giddiness, the exuberance, the, the just the sheer delight that 50,000 people would be feeling mm-hmm. while, you know, the home team is losing by six or eight or 10 or whatever. So I don't think the blowout thing would work. And, the other thing that is a problem is that it would obviously for you know obvious reasons it would benefit good teams and it would uh, you know be terrible for bad teams if you're a good team you'd get to keep a lot more money and if you're a bad team then you would uh, have to refund a lot more money and that would make it hard to win now you might argue that that would incentivize teams to win and if you think that lack of incentive is a significant problem for pro sports teams then maybe you would consider that a feature and not a bug um, but I, I my guess is that it's not the big problem that losing teams face um, and you would just make it a lot harder. So for those two primary reasons, I can't make it work. Ben, can you please make it work? It's also kind of a logistical nightmare, I guess. I mean, if you, if you have 20,000 walk-ups or something uh, and then you lose the game and I mean, if you have thousands of people who paid cash, you can't just, refund their card that they use to buy the ticket so you'd have to have a giant line after That's the true. game or something of people uh lined up for for refunds and maybe maybe people wouldn't even bother waiting if they had a, a cheap ticket um yeah it's true i mean I, probably in 10 years nobody will use cash right, whatsoever yes. So as long as we're talking about a, a plan that you're rolling out in 10 years, that might not be an issue. Also, I mean, I don't know. It could be that you just enter the barcode of the ticket and, uh, you know, you could, after the game you can do this and have it just go straight into your PayPal account or something like that. You can have it debited to whatever account you want online as long as you have a, a, a valid b- uh, barcode mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, I don't know. There, I, I do. I like the idea. I do wish it worked. It would be nice to give, give the fans some extra stake in the victory or the loss and just, yeah, I mean, that would be nice. Cause I've been at a, a lot of games that were good games, but it, it seemed like the crowd just kind of wasn't into it for whatever reason. And it sort of saps your, your enjoyment of it a little bit, I think, even if the, the game itself is good. Um, so yeah, it would be, it would be nice if this worked, but I... Yeah, so, okay, so every, anybody who can figure out a way to make this work, please let us know, and I guarantee you move to the top of the email questions yes. list. Okay, so next we're going to do the uh, catcher framing segment of the show, <laughs> as, as we always mm-hmm. do. Uh, we had... Uh, I, there's actually three that I'd like to get to, wow. um, and we had even more than that. So uh, the first one is very quick. What is the origin of the term catcher framing? Is it because the catcher's body forms a frame around the ball like a portrait or because the catcher is framing the batter to look like he just passed on a strike framing as in who framed Roger Rabbit? 
Uh, I looked in the Dixon Baseball Dictionary. They don't actually give the origin, although the first reference they have to it is the mid-90s, which is interestingly late uh, to me. And usually the Dixon Baseball Dictionary lists the first when they give a, and you know, as seen mm-hmm. in, they usually give the first that he could find, I believe. Uh, so that's pretty late. Do you think, uh, well, I guess it's possible. Yeah. I, I would have guessed that I knew the term before then, but maybe that's I didn't. Surprising. It's actually, uh, it links as well to, or refers as well to two other terms for it. One of which is, uh, pulling the ball mm-hmm. and for obvious reasons. And, uh, well, yes, it's not how we normally think of framing anymore, but, um, we think of framing more as being quiet, but this was more moving the ball into the strike mm-hmm. zone. And, uh, that one actually was used in 1980. 82 or so um and i think the third one is i forget what the third term was but um the i I always took it as like a portrait Mm -hmm. it never even occurred to me that it would be like framing as a as a crime although it um makes some sense especially when you think about it as coming originally from pulling the ball in which your the the emphasis is on deception and not uh kind of craftsmanship mm-hmm. if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, never really occurred to me that it was anything other than uh just kind of framing, yeah, just, you know, making it look good, putting it in a in a nice frame for the in an attractive package for the umpire. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So that's our, our guess. Although if we get confirmation we'll pass it along. Uh Adam uh talked about uh our conversation in which we talked about uh how the how this how how catching would change or you know whether there would be any sort of catcher skill to framing if there were robot umps and uh adam points out and i don't have really a response to this but it's an interesting idea if an automated strike zone was implemented you would see massive changes in the ways guys play the position instead of squatting uh with your butt above your ankles to avoid blocking the umps would you see more catchers standing close to a 90-degree angle with runners on to get in a better position to throw out base stealers? Could you see catchers turn sideways? And that's interesting. It is, it is interesting, it isn't is interesting. it? It is interesting. I doubt you would see any sort of change overnight because I would think that the whatever generation of catchers is around, if and when this happens, uh, will be accustomed to catching a certain way and and won't just uh, immediately be able to change the way that they're accustomed to catching. But I think, uh, I mean, over time, maybe that wouldn't be a factor and, and you, your next generation of catchers could could come up with some innovative way to catch. But I think, I mean, there's there's a benefit to, to presenting a target still to the pitcher that is, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think, yeah. I, I think you'd see, I think you'd see catchers on their knees mostly. Uh-huh. You'd, You'd say because I mean that would be actually quite a big change to the game because catchers would not have nearly the physical toll of squatting 180 times a game if they could just be you know just resting on their knees like you always wanted to do in little league and your coach would yell at you. I guess except when there are runners in, in when they're yeah, right. on base. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess so. I, I mean, I, I doubt you would see guys set up completely sideways. You'd you'd still because I think certain pitchers. Uh, like to throw to guys who kind of have wide shoulders and and a big target to aim for, and they try to aim for the center of their body. Um, so I don't know. Maybe they could adjust to to some completely different way, but I doubt it would change quickly. I wonder how low, what the what the lowest level of baseball that will if robot umps ever came into to play uh-huh. to call balls and strikes. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen necessarily ever or within the next 75 years but if they do i wonder how low 
in the game they'd go if it would just be the big leagues or if colleges would eventually have them or what. All right. Yeah, um, I guess, I don't know, teams would probably want to extend it as far as possible to just acclimate their catchers to the, the situation that they're going to face in the majors. Uh, I mean, it seems daunting technologically right now, but presumably, I guess nothing is daunting technologically mm-hmm. in the future. All right, uh, and then uh, Matthew asks about whether we're focusing too much on catcher framing, although he uh, has the disclaimer that he is not a catching framing catcher framing hater. But um, he basically uh, offers the idea of base rate fallacy, which... Uh, quote, happens when the values of sensitivity and specificity, which depend only on the test itself, are used in place of positive predictive value and negative predictive value, which depend on both the test and the baseline prevalence of the event. I don't really know what that means, <laughs> to be honest. I, I tried, but um, not great at it. Um, but fortunately, Matthew helps by, he says, in, in this case, the questions we need to be able to answer in order not to have been suckered into this fallacy are, how often would a given pitch, though we know it to be outside the strike zone, be called a strike anyway by an average jump with an average catch behind the plate? How many missed calls either way are really left once we take out the standard variance in umpire performance? We have so much data these days, it's sometimes difficult to sort signal from noise. Is it possible? The alluring specificity and nuance of catcher framing is distracting us from the fact that most stolen or lost strikes are the result of umpires, random chance or twitches that don't actually reflect a catcher's baseline receiving skills. Uh, and I, so I guess what I think what he's saying is that these all every every catcher framing evaluation depends on a counterfactual and that it's possible that what we're measuring is um, is not framing at all, that uh, that we're being uh, that we're excited by the fact that we have these specific statistics, but that they might not actually be telling us what we think they are. What do you think are the chances that catcher framing statistics are actually um, uh, just noise? Uh, very, very low. I mean, uh, pretty much insignificant. I, I mean, it, it certainly seems, I mean, one of the most convincing thing about these framing statistics over the last couple of years is their their consistency and their stability and their reliability just from year to year and and the the high correlation um, between a you know a catcher's framing performance in one season and his framing performance the next and I, I think if it were just noise uh, or largely noise you wouldn't see the the same catchers showing up on the the top of the leaderboard or the bottom of the leaderboard year after year. Um, that that's kind of what gives me confidence that it's real just as as it gives me confidence that Miguel Cabrera is actually a good hitter because uh he is every year um but wait but Colin Wires has made the exact opposite point regarding defensive stats where he says that uh if there's a correlation from year to year for uh, you know, a player's defensive stats, it, it might be that the defensive stats are great. It might also be that there's a persistent bias that actually strengthens the more that you measure something and that um, that it might actually not be a positive thing at all. So if, if you know, if a catcher does well uh, four years in a row in catcher framing, it might be because he's really good at catcher framing or it might be because the bad uh, measurement that we have picks up something intrinsic in him that is not actually real. Yeah, now, I, I'm not suggesting that's true, but I'm suggesting that that's a thing that Colin might say. It's yeah, it's conceivable. I, I mean, I, I guess uh, it's hard to think of what that bias would be. I, I mean, when when Colin has well, the pitcher, right? It'd be the pitcher, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. Which is, I mean, 
and and there is I mean it is more difficult to to tell if a guy has been throwing to the same pitchers over and over and he's only played for for one team um but for most people I mean they move around enough and pitchers change enough that all of these variables are are constantly changing and the umpire is changing all the time and the pitcher and the batter are, are changing pretty often um and there's no real there's no real measurement bias as far as I mean Colin has looked into you know other fielding stats are are charted by people who are watching the game uh, on TV and it's it's hard to do that there's often there's no real um, there's no real frame of reference so so a guy who has good range might show up as having even better range because you can't really compare it to anything and maybe you can't even see where the base is and you can't see how far he went before the play to get to that point and there's just a lot of sort of assumptions that you have to make because of the way that data is collected um and i don't know whether that would apply to to catcher framing which isn't really i mean it's measured the same way for every catcher uh regardless of of how good he is or or what team he's on pretty much um, so that would seem to, to minimize the possibility of there being a, a persistent bias like you can see with, with say, batted ball stats or, or defensive stats, I would think. Um, I, mean, I mean, it's possible that we're, we're missing something, certainly. I've been pretty convinced. And I, I mean, I think when Matt says, are we, are we focusing on it too much? I think, uh, yeah, probably relative to its importance. I mean, I, I've been writing about it all the time. Um, and the the amount to which I am writing about it nowadays is not really proportional to its importance, I don't think. I mean, if I wanted to just write about the, the most important thing, I would probably, I don't know, I'd just write about who's a good hitter or something. Um, I don't know that, that the, the amount which I've been writing about uh, framing is reflective of its actual importance relative to other aspects of the game. I think it is important, but I've been dwelling on it a lot just because I feel like it's an area that is new and interesting and in which we can still sort of discover some things and, and learn some things. And there are questions that haven't been asked and there aren't really that many areas of the game that it's, uh, that it's as easy to look into and that haven't been looked into over and over and over again. Uh, and, you know, we can't write about hitting statistics as much because it seems like we have a pretty good handle on that and we've had a pretty good handle on that. So I'm probably writing about framing too much and neglecting, say, uh, you know, game calling or something, but I don't know how to measure game calling. So if there comes a point when we are able to measure that, then I will probably write about that a lot. I'll write about whatever, uh, wherever I, I guess that I think I can add the most value or, or uh, convey the most new and interesting information, I guess. And it, it seems like, I mean, whenever I write about it or we talk about it on the podcast, we get a ton of questions about it and lots of people reading it. So in that sense, the, the audience has kind of voted in favor of, of us continuing to write and talk about it. There, there does seem to be interest out there, not just, not just me. Well, yeah, 
nobody was attacking Ben. <laughs> Did that sound defensive? I don't know, because I because I worry about uh, writing about it too much. I don't. I, I mean, I don't want to. Uh, you know, I don't want to kill it by writing about it all the time, but uh, it just seems like an, an interesting thing that we can actually say some meaningful stuff about. And I don't know, it's hard to to come up with topics where you can have the same sort of insight, I feel. So as long as I still have something to say, I'll keep saying it. All right, uh, Lane asks, this will be a very quick one. We've all heard of a team batting around and having every hitter in the lineup bat in the same inning. Has a team ever pitched around and had every member of its bullpen pitch in the same inning? If not, what's the closest a team has ever come? Um, and so the quick answer is that the record is, according to the Internet, uh, is six pitchers in one inning by the Oakland A's three full years before Tony La Russa took over, by oh. the way. Um and uh, that's a Tony La Russa joke. Um, <laughs> and it was in uh, 1983 in September. They gave up 10 runs in an inning. The most uh, it was the ninth inning, and they blew the lead, uh, which is seems to be important to setting this kind of a record. Is you it has to be a close enough game that uh, you're going to want to do all the the complicated and clever relieving uh, at some point before it gets out of hand. Um, and the most interesting thing about this inning, as far as I can tell, is that both Dave Beard and Ed Farmer pitched in it. And Dave Beard and Ed Farmer seem like uh, two fake names that you would give to the same person. Uh, and you know exactly what the person looks like with those two names. So like, I could imagine that you're sitting at a restaurant with your friend and you're like, wow, look at that guy over there. And yeah, look at Dave Beard over there. And the other guy goes, yeah, check out Ed Farmer. So... They both pitched in the same in the same inning, uh, but that was September, which means oh, okay. uh, September call-ups. Mm-hmm. And uh, my guess is, I actually didn't read the question close enough. Uh, I was thinking every pitcher, so every reliever plus the starter, all in the same inning. And the starter actually did not appear in that inning. He'd been pulled before oh. that uh, inning, so it was six relievers, all relievers in that inning. And but my guess is that that is not their whole bullpen. Uh, that they had yeah, I was, call-ups at the time. I was going to say, I mean, that, bullpens were, were considerably smaller then. Um, they were five. Yeah, you'd have a five-man bullpen. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, yeah, uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know for a fact that they had other guys on the roster. I, I could have looked it up. Uh, but my hunch, my, my very deep suspicion is that this was specifically a September thing going on and that if this had, been, if this had happened four days earlier, they probably would have used – maybe four, which you do see more commonly. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, So let's see. Um, I want to get to this one because I haven't noticed it, but why does Ben use so few contractions (laughs) when speaking? I hadn't noticed that either. I just used one in that that Uh, sentence. In that sentence you did, yeah. I I think we both do. And uh, I certainly use a lot fewer than I do in real life. And I, I think... My guess is that it's a, a sort of a form. It's a forced formality to try to keep from saying something dumb. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a way of slowing ourselves down without saying like and yeah and you know. It's it's just basically a tick that I think we use to stall because we're both slightly uncomfortable speaking in this format. I think if you and I were speaking on the phone, it wouldn't be um, nearly so stiff and rigid. Probably, I was. Yeah, I was watching uh, an episode of Star Trek the other day where where Data does not use contractions. I just didn't use one, and then I did. Uh, but his his evil twin robot does 
use contractions, and that's that's oh, one wow. of the ways that they're able to tell them apart. Wow. So. That must have been hard for the actor. Um, the, but Anthony also asked another question, which is another quick one. Has a team ever DH'd for a player other than the pitcher? I don't mean pitch hit, but pinch hit, but let the pitcher hit and regularly bat for a position player on a team with Brennan Ryan and say, the 2013 version of Wes Farrell. It seems like it would be, at least be an option. You know, in my head, in my brain, in my memory, this happened when I was a kid. Uh, but it it didn't because it's not legal. And I, I guess what I'm probably thinking, I'm probably conflating this with some combination of the time Rick Roden batted sixth mm-hmm. for the Yankees or, or something along those lines. And like my own brain thinking this would be a great idea and that they should do it. Um, but in fact, it's totally illegal, uh, 100% illegal. Uh, the rule specifically, well, the rule names the pitcher. Once the game pitcher is switched from the mound to a defensive position, this move shall terminate the DH for the remainder of the game. So, uh, sorry, I, I read that out of order. I was supposed to read the other one. A hitter may be designated to bat for the starting pitcher and all subsequent pitchers in any game without otherwise affecting the status of the pitchers in the game. Uh, and then it specifically um, ties the, the the spot to the pitcher. Um, well, so here's what I'm thinking. Like, I actually don't like this rule. I, I like the idea that um, positions are just a social construct and that, in fact, it's just nine guys on a field and a shortstop is just a guy who's standing near shortstop. He could move over to second base and he could be standing over there. It wouldn't change his, you know, his, mm-hmm. his being or anything like mm-hmm. that. It, I mean, it's, it, you can, you, you could have all, you could have seven guys stand at third base if you really wanted to. There's nothing illegal about having seven guys all standing at third base. And yet, um, you know, we would assign them all positions anyway. Only one of them would actually be the third baseman, but they could all stand there. The third baseman could play in left field and the left fielder could play in third base. And it would technically be true even if the official score enforced some tyrannical position system on them. But uh, I like that idea. I like the idea that, that it's very fluid and undefined. And pitcher is uh, pitcher breaks this. And this is the one rule. Uh, this is not the one rule. This is one of two rules in which it is explicitly made clear that the pitcher is different than the other players and that he is therefore, uh, that he therefore breaks the fluidity. Um, the other rule being that you must face at least one batter when you step on the mound. Uh, but you could have argued that at least that rule, that rule is specifically about the mound and that maybe it still wouldn't change what, you know, what I, my, my idyllic vision of pit players being at whatever position they want. But this specifically makes it clear that a pitcher is a pitcher um, and you have to do it. So um, the other rule that uh, comes off of this is once the pitcher is switched from the mound to a defensive position, this move shall terminate the DH hitter role. Sorry, the DH role for the remainder of the game. So that makes it clear that the pitcher cannot wander over to second base and play second base uh, without losing his pitcher status. It is a very clearly defined status, um, and that's uh, a little bit disappointing to me. But nobody else listening cares. It's funny. Uh, Zachary Levine wrote an article on Tuesday at BP on the shift. And how the shift kind of has a an image problem or a PR problem, and that every sport really has an equivalent to the shift, and and it it should just be the new normal in baseball, and uh, eventually we won't even think of it as the shift; we'll just think of it as defense. Um, and Matt Trueblood, who just asked us that that catcher framing question, left a comment on that article saying uh, or asking how far into the future before the notion of set positions seems silly. Uh, and that you just kind of 
put your your best defender where he's needed most depending on the given batter and people just kind of move around and and they go uh where you sort of most expect the ball to be hit and so then it is it's less of a a constant um one guy assigned to one position and Colin Wires answered that that comment and pointed out that the the trouble is that you have base runners which sort of dictates a fair amount of your fielder positioning and that certain guys kind of have to be in certain places at, at certain times to make sure that runners can't just run all over the place. So, um, that's just part of the calculus. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Anyway, I mean, like I saw yesterday, I saw a team playing the, um, you know, doing the, 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 what do you call it when it's a uh, runners on first and second and there's going to be a bunt and they do the, the, wheel, the play. wheel play. Yeah. yeah. So the shortstop starts out at second base. He's standing on second base, which is not where the shortstop plays, but it's at least basically where the shortstop plays. And then the pitch comes and he sprint as the pitch is coming, he sprints to third. And so by the time the ball would be in play, he's standing at third base. He's, you know, he's playing the third base position. So uh, you know, the, I guess in that sense, the shortstop is still playing within range of shortstop. Uh, but you know, even in that case, he's there's there's a certain there's movement allowed. You don't have to be in a circle. I mean, can you imagine if it were actually that there was a predefined zone, like in like in basketball, there's like the three second rule, and you can't be in the box for three seconds. It, like, what if there was actually like a circle at each position, and it could be you know big enough that you could wander a little bit, but you weren't allowed to leave that position in the field of play it would be awful Mm -hmm. and in a sense the rules have put a uh a circle around the pitcher's mound and and declared uh declared none of us free and i value there would be no jeter flip play exactly Mm -hmm. there'd be like i mean if i mean jeter like what if there were like uh electric fences like hunger Games style he would would just jump over them and well, he would have. He probably would have fallen into the pit yes. too while he was over there. All right. So last question is uh, not that baseball-y, but it's from John Schaefer, who is a uh, podcaster himself. He podcasts a uh, a video game. A uh, sorry, I, I don't think they call it video games. He's, he's a, do, do he's a game designer. He, yeah. He's a game designer, and he hosts a podcast on game design called the Game Design roundtable i believe uh i just think that you're not supposed to say video games anymore right <laughs> nobody says video uh, games. i say it sometimes i guess it, it it sounds like you're talking about something a kid would do and now everyone uh-huh. does that so it, it does sound a little weird um all right but there there are other types of games so sometimes you have to specify so he says, uh, as you've noticed several times, having a career involved with baseball has altered your relationship with the game. I was wondering if, and he italicizes this, so you know it's important, hosting this podcast for the last 10 months has had a similar effect. Uh, as a po- the co-host of a podcast, I can say that's happened to me, um, but I can see how this might not be the case for you guys, as you've already had to change your perspective in this manner. And he also relatedly asks... Uh, do we aim to avoid covering the same topics on the podcast that we write about? So uh, the answer to that one is that we don't, I guess we don't aim to, but we both feel like once we've said something, it it works more the other way, which is I'm looking for a topic at 830 at night and I find something and normally without the podcast, that's something that I would, I would probably develop and turn into an Mm -hmm. article because I'm always looking for article ideas too. But once I've talked about it, I just don't really feel like, uh, 
repeating myself. It feels it feels weird. Like I remember being very disturbed when I found out that stand-up comedians weren't making it up as they go; that they were just repeating it this, the next night and just acting like they thought of it that moment, like they were just acting spontaneous. Uh, so I have a even if I tell a story, I don't know if anybody else is like this. Probably everybody else is like this. But if I tell a story to my say mom, and then like four hours later I see say my wife. And I tell her the story. I have to preface it with, I was just telling my <laughs> yes, mom earlier. I always <laughs> acknowledge that it's not an original thought. <laughs> yeah, even though my, nobody knows. So, um, so we don't, we hard, I think we hardly ever do the same topics, um, but not because we think it's, it's wrong, just because it feels weird. And occasionally we'll talk about a topic on here. But that doesn't happen very often. It probably happens once a month or once. Yeah, I, I try to avoid it just because I feel like uh, our listeners are our readers to, to a large extent. There's a lot of overlap between the two. So I feel like if we write about something we talked about or talked about something that we write about, uh, those people will either not read the article or will not listen to the episode. And I want people to read and listen to us. So try to we know, we know, though, we know there's not a lot of overlap, right? I mean, we see the difference in the traffic for each one. We know that a lot of you guys yeah, there, don't. Yeah, there are a lot of, of listeners who are not readers or not readers of, of any given article. Um, and presumably a lot of our readers just mm-hmm. aren't podcast listeners. Yep. Yeah, there's there's some overlap. It's it's not a, a huge amount of overlap. But, but yeah, I, uh, I mean, I guess there are times when I've, feel like I wrote something more interesting than usual and I kind of want to talk about it or I guess there have been times when I have an idea that I kind of want to develop by talking to you about it and then write about it except yeah then there's that risk that I'll feel like I have nothing left to write about after we talk about it um so yeah it doesn't happen that often and I I guess I would say I try to avoid it or at least yeah I, I would rather avoid it and has it changed your relationship to the to the game at all? Uh, I don't think so. I, I don't know. The, other than the, the constant dread that sets in on both of us when we start trying to think of topics every night and don't immediately have one, um, probably not. I guess it, I don't know. I guess it's just made me more open to, well, there are certain things that I would not write about that I will talk about. So I guess it's made me more willing to to consider those things or more aware of those things. Um, in the past, I just might have dismissed them because I wasn't going to get an article out of it or I, I didn't feel like I could write 2,000 words about it, but I could talk for 10 minutes about it maybe. Uh, so so I, I consider topics for the podcast that I would not consider for articles. Yeah, I think I probably expose myself to a bit more of the news of the day. I'm not typically all that... Uh, well, I, 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 it's not that I'm not interested in the news of the day. It's that I kind of uh, found it a bit too time-consuming um, to, to, to keep up on, you know, the 40 things that happen that are all sort of semi-interesting every day. And uh, and now I do. I, I at least skim the news uh, so that I know what's going on. And, um, and I find myself more interested in it because, yeah, it is all potential fodder in a way that it, it wasn't – before, yeah, so. I do feel uh, more generally just more informed probably than yeah, when we started. So that's that's a good yeah. thing. I mean, uh, it. Uh, I don't know. People, I think, generally know that you and I don't talk about these things beforehand, and therefore we're always scrambling a little bit to respond to each other. But I mean, I'm probably like 
I don't know, a third of Ben's topics are totally new to me. And I'm like, he's talking about them and I'm listening and nodding along and thinking, oh, this is interesting. And then it comes to me Mm -hmm. and then it comes to me and there's a, there's a moment of panic. But, um, uh, I mean, I definitely, uh, learn from, from Ben a lot just talking, talking about this. That's nice. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, all right. So we're done. Uh, we have a couple more shows this week. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with one of those shows.